31, Luke 13, verse 31. When we were here last in the 13th of Luke, we heard Jesus call to us to strive to enter the narrow door. Many of his hearers, through repentance, entered that door. Uh, Many others would not enter that door of eternal life, which is Jesus, and would find later and will find later to their chagrin that the door was eventually locked to them. Uh, Those who would not receive Jesus, who would not enter heaven through him, he called and will one day call workers of evil. Well, now Dr. Luke links what we heard then to what we're going to read today with that little phrase there in verse 31, at that very hour. I think that he is inviting us to look at and consider the people we're about to encounter in this hour, the Pharisees, Herod, even Jerusalem, and to ask where these fall in the equation, outside or inside that narrow door that leads to eternal life. Well, let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray most of all that we may find ourselves on the inside of that narrow door, and that now as children of yours, given eternal life, we may know how it is that we should walk in the steps of him who has saved us by shedding his blood for us on the cross. With what passion we must live our lives if we will indeed follow Christ. We pray that your spirit will be here and that he will open our eyes to these great things, not only to see them, but to live them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 13, verses 31 through 35, we'll be reading. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes In the name of the Lord. Jesus was nothing if not passionate. His feelings, his emotions, his thoughts, his convictions ran deep and complex in the days of his life on earth. In that, too, he was truly and fully a man, a human being in every way like you and like me. Only he lived much more than we do, or at least more than most of us do. He lived every day with a sense, a present sense, of his impending death. 
He knew that there were many who were seeking just that, seeking his life. And on this particular day, at this very hour, his enemies, who were themselves enemies with one another, Herod and the Pharisees, those enemies of one another actually joined forces against Christ as enemies of Jesus. Who of us can actually imagine for a moment that when the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, you'd better make yourself scarce, Herod wants to kill you. I say, who of us can imagine that they did so out of love, you know, for Jesus and his life? As one Scottish preacher put it over a century ago, even a lamb might be suspicious if wolves were to show themselves tenderly careful of its safety. We've already seen in Luke's gospel that the Pharisees, with but a few exceptions, were seeking how to entrap and to kill Jesus. So we may be forgiven, uh, I think, for being a bit incredulous, a little bit skeptical concerning their expression of concern for Jesus. Well, Jesus cuts right to to the chase. Go and tell that fox. Not exactly the... The Jesus, maybe, that we might imagine or even are used to hearing. Uh, Not that we've not seen him angry before. We've seen him flipping tables and and wielding a whip and chasing men in every direction. Jesus was a man of deep passions, but this may be the only time in the Bible that we hear Jesus speak with such contempt for a particular individual. It's not an invitation for us, by the way, to speak contemptuously of those whom God has put in authority over us. Remember, Jesus is not only a prophet, which would have been enough, but the prophet, the capital P prophet, and so sits rightfully as judge over even the rulers of men. And when he calls Herod a fox, he isn't exactly paying him a compliment. Herod was a fox. Not so much that he was so cunning or crafty, perhaps, but rather one who lacks the status, who is impotent to carry out his threat. Herod may have some power, indeed he did, from Rome as the Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, uh, a puppet king he was, but Jesus In his divine Aaron is the king of kings. Herod's threats are real, but to Jesus they're toothless. Herod is also fox-like in his malicious destructiveness. As one observer has it, upon hearing of Herod's threat, Jesus pegs the tetrarch as a varmint in the Lord's field, a murderer of God's agents a would-be disruptor of the divine economy. We've heard of and from and met Herod before. He's the one who killed, you remember, Jesus' dear friend and relative and forerunner, John the Baptist, who had uh, declared Jesus' coming as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. We'll meet Herod again later in Luke's gospel and hear how he wanted to see Jesus perform a miracle. 
And how, as he sat in judgment on Jesus and our master stood before him, Jesus answered him not a word to all of his questionings. Though Herod and the Pharisees were, as I said, enemies of one another, they shared this much together, a common desire to see Jesus leave Perea, where he was at this point, and go down to Judea. Herod, because he didn't want this Jesus movement uh, to get out of hand on his own turf, and the Pharisees, because they want Jesus on their turf. They want him in Judea, where they can exercise some of their own authority against him. Jesus gets all that. He understands the politics that are involved and that are now, for the moment, united Against him. He knows where all of this is going. Yet he remains committed to his mission and compassionate for the people. And those are the two points I want to consider with you this morning. Jesus remained committed to his mission and compassionate to the people. First, he's committed to his mission. What's his message for the Pharisees to bring back to that fox, back to Herod? Just this. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Now, don't look for too much in that three-day imagery there. Uh, It's tempting, I know, to read into those words some reference to his three days in the grave, or maybe to count three days from now until he goes to the uh, cross. But it is neither of those. Jesus is still weeks, if not months, from the cross and the grave. What this is, is a common figure of speech and expression in that day. Basically, he's saying this to Herod. Look, I've got work to do, and I'm going to do it, and that's the way it is. I'm casting out demons, I'm performing cures today and tomorrow, and when I'm finished, then I'll be finished. I can't help but wonder if there might not also have been a little poke in Herod's eye here, uh, in that he says he's casting out demons and curing people, neither of which this little kinglet named Herod Antipas can do, could do, in his wildest dreams. Jesus is on a mission. He is fixed on accomplishing his task. And there's even more to it. Verse 33, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. I must go on my way, he says. Must There's no time for fearing danger. He was on a divine timetable and nothing could and nothing would stand in his way. He was doing the will of God, his father, and he was on his father's schedule. From all eternity, it had been decreed that God the Son would be crucified in Jerusalem at the Passover, long before Herod was even a twinkle in his mother's eye long before Herod's first ancestor was even born. Adam, or was created rather. Long before any of that, Jesus had set 
this course. God the Son and God the Father had covenanted together on this course that now Jesus was taking to Jerusalem and he would be there soon enough, not a minute too early, not a minute too late. And all along the way, he would accomplish all his holy will. Until that day of the cross, no weapon fashioned or forged against him could possibly succeed. Now don't let all of that, that passion of Jesus to accomplish his mission, get past you without stopping now to think carefully about it for a moment. That passion, my brothers and sisters, lies behind your salvation. It's because Jesus would not be derailed from his track by anything or anyone that you are here today in God's house, worshiping him. A child of God saved by the cross because he did not give in but bested the devil in the wilderness resisting the temptation to take the kingdoms uh, of the world while sidestepping the cross. Because he would not be bullied or intimidated by Herod or the Pharisees. Because he resisted manfully, even on the cross when they called out to him, come down if you say, if you are who you say you are and will believe in you. Because of his single-minded devotion to the will of the Father and to the redemption of his people, you are a member of the kingdom of God today by faith. Hallelujah! What a Savior! And then, don't let this passion of Jesus for his mission fail to sweep you up in your own passion, for your own. We are to have, aren't we, the mind of Christ? Isn't that what the Bible says? We're have to, uh, to have the mind of Jesus Christ, right? That means that we too must have a holy passion about obeying our Father in heaven and accomplishing all that he is to accomplish through us in these short years that we have to live on the earth. And we ought to pursue those purposes with the same unshaken confidence with which our Master did. Jesus didn't have to fear Herod. He didn't have to fear Herod's death threats. Herod couldn't harm a hair on Jesus' head until it was time in God's sovereign providential plan. Nor can man do anything to you. Cannot lay a finger upon you apart from your sovereign Father's will. Until the day that God has already prepared and named for your death, marked on your calendar, you are immortal. Not that we're fatalists, of course, or relieved from our duties of planning and working and using means at our disposal. But when everything is said and done, it really comes down to this. Duties are ours. 
and events are God's. One holy passion filling all your frame for serving God will lead to your peace of heart and your productivity for the kingdom. Look, your hairs, the hairs on your head are numbered, every single one of them. The steps you take are ordered. The events of your life are orchestrated. Even the day of your death is appointed. All directly, all immediately, all intimately by your God for his glory and for your good. Everything is. So in sickness or in health, in safety or in danger, in plenty or in want, you may march whatever the circumstances of your life, whatever the threats against you, you may march directly straight forward toward heaven while you serve the Lord on earth, whatever your circumstances may be. You can say as you trace the Savior's steps in this world with your own, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following with the same confident passion, for you will not die until your work is done. Christian, remain committed to your mission as Jesus, your King, is committed to his. Second, consider Jesus' compassion for the people. Don't you hear it as his mind turns to Jerusalem in verse 34? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Listen to the master's heart now, overflowing with love, mingled with grief and care and concern. Not just for a single city, but for everything for which Jerusalem stood. For which she was the heart and center and capital. Israel. The Jews. The very people for whom he had come to the earth to live and to die. Who were even now rejecting, even plotting against him. What intense emotion, what unfathomable pathos finds its expression this day in, on Jesus' lips. Reminds me of King David grieving for his son, doesn't it, you? Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. If only I had died for you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And she had, you know, not only had she rejected the messages of the prophets over the years, she also killed the messengers, stoned them like they were apostate themselves who brought those messages to them. Yet even then, even then, God did not reject her out of hand. How often God the Son would have gathered her children together. 
like, like chicks under a hen's wings. William Hendrickson in his commentary writes how the similar, simile Jesus uses here is, is unforgettable. A, imagine it, a, a chicken hawk suddenly appears, its wings folded, its, its eyes concentrated on the farmyard, its ominous claws ready to grasp a chick. Or to change the figure Hendrickson does, a storm is approaching, lightning flashes and becomes more frequent, the rumbling of the thunder grows louder and follows the electrical discharges more and more closely. Raindrops develop into a shower, a shower into a cloudburst. In either case, what happens is that the anxious and commanding cluck, cluck, cluck of the hen is heard as she calls her chicks, conceals them under her protecting wings, and rushes off to a place of shelter. Can you think of a more tender expression or beautiful from the animal kingdom than that? So Jesus wanted to do, longed to do, from the depth of his heart. But she would not. She refused. And that fact makes this love of Jesus all the more amazing, all the more striking and arresting. They were in rebellion against him, against God. Their hands were covered in the blood of the prophets, and soon they would add to their stains the blood of Jesus himself. This Jesus knew full well. Yet he longed for them and for their salvation. Amazing love. How can it be? J.C. Ryle put it this way. He knew well the wickedness of the city. He knew what crimes had been committed there in times past. He knew what was coming on himself at the time of his crucifixion. Yet even to Jerusalem, he says, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings. I say they would not. They refused and And as a result, all that Jesus said would come upon them did. Behold, your house is forsaken, he says to them. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God gave them over to their rebellion. Their house truly was forsaken. And within a few decades, just a few short decades, not one stone would be left standing on another in Jerusalem, raised to the ground she would be by Rome in flames. That's sad news. Indeed it is. Yet here's the wonderful news in all of this for you. He still has compassion for sinners. Even sinners whose very sins nailed him to the tree. Even you 
in the hearing of my voice right now. His wing is still extended for you in all your troubles. Come under it. Are you afraid? Then pray like David. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Are you in danger? Then believe God's promise to cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. Are you feeling unloved or unwanted? Then claim his biblical promise. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Do you need to receive the gift of eternal life? Then make this your prayer. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Jesus stands ready. No more than ready. Willing. No more than that. He loves and desires, even now from his heart, to receive you, my friends, under his wing, extended still now for you to come under, if you but will, by faith. Then you will be able to say, Oh God, You are my God, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. And not only is this good news for you, but for lost sinners all around the world and even in your own backyard. You needn't look far to find people living in rebellion against God. People all around you are having sex outside of marriage. They're trafficking drugs. They're stealing from their employers. They're cheating on their taxes. They're operating by crooked business practices. They're arranging dirty deals under the table. Your reaction to them may well be to to keep them at arm's length, at least more likely as far away as possible. But Jesus died for many of them too. Indeed, the Bible says we were all those things ourselves until the shadow of that wing fell over us. My brothers and sisters, the church today is to speak and to act for Jesus. The invitation to come under those wings must be extended through our words that we speak of peace and of reconciliation with God through the deeds that we do of love and mercy that we show to a lost and dying world. Extend that mercy, dear flock. Extend it to those who so desperately, desperately need it. 
May you and I spread the wings of compassion, the very wings of the one who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, who does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And then we may anticipate with with joy the day that we will see him, the day that you will find out just how much joy can be packed into a single human heart and overflow from it, the day that you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen.